Hi, I'm Debbie Georgettis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today we're going to be talking about Baltimore besieged, Sidney Powell bringing Flynn justice, Radcliffe to the rescue, the border battle, and a poverty shoe fest. And finally, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis, and welcome to today's First Five. A lot of you are probably watching the tweet battle going on between President Trump and a member of Congress, Representative Elijah Cummings. He is, represents the Baltimore area. He's been in Congress since 1996, and he's chairman of the Oversight Committee. And President Trump began tweeting a little bit about Representative Cummings and his district, his district in Baltimore. And in particular, President Trump, he used some pretty rough language. He was making reference to the fact that Elijah Cummings has been representing that district since 1996 and it's kind of a mess. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But part of what President Trump was also making reference to when he called Elijah Cummings a brutal bully, he was making reference to the way Elijah Cummings treated, spoke to, yelled at members of the Border Patrol when they came before his House Oversight Committee. So President Trump tweeted about that. He talked about how he referred to Elijah Cummings as a brutal bully, shouting at the men and women of the Border Patrol. And then he also went on to say, says Trump in a tweet, his Baltimore district is far worse and more dangerous. So he's saying the district that Cummings represents is far worse than the danger Cummings is talking about at America's border. He says his district is con uh, considered the worst in the USA, one of the worst in the USA. I want to hit three personal points about this and then make some other observations that others have made in the past. Number one, my husband and I actually lived in Maryland. We lived in the northern suburbs outside of Washington, D.C. before we moved to Texas many years ago. This was between 96 and 2000. At that time, in Baltimore, there's a lovely area called the Inner Harbor. We used to go up to the Inner Harbor for kind of a treat on like a Sunday afternoon, especially if my parents were visiting or my husband's parents were visiting. We had three small children. It was a lovely area. You could walk around the Inner Harbor. There were restaurants and shops. You could take a little cruise around the harbor on these tour boats. It was safe. It was lovely. They had little shops. Just a, a great place, a real magnet for tourists. That place is like a crime zone these days. I read just today, I tried a quick Google, you know, because I've been reading a lot about it, but the kinds of things that happen now in the Inner Harbor, what used to be this just really quaint and wonderful development for the city of Baltimore. They have gangs showing up on weekends. They have people robbed at gunpoint. They have people beaten. Uh, tourists who are just doing something as, as easy and simple as trying to walk into a restaurant beaten by local people, local crowds of um, gang members. And so it is not just the observation of President Trump that this area has declined. It is just everyone who lives in the Baltimore area comments about it. They're trying to get away, trying to get away from inner city Baltimore. And so President Trump was pointing out something that really many others have pointed out. I want to make a few, uh, my, my second point is, as always is the case, when the Democrats don't like to have one of their own criticized, instead of responding, acknowledging how bad 
the scene is in Baltimore. I'll tell you in a moment just how bad it is. But instead of responding and saying, well, you know, we have this program in place or we have problems because of this or we think that, you know, we have a proposal to fix this. What do you think? They instantly, as they always do, go to the accusation of racism. And that was, of course, what just spewed out of the mouths of numerous Democrats uh, the moment that this um, that Trump started his tweet storm. And the one uh, comment particularly wanted to share uh, was by Representative Rashida Tlaib. She's a Democrat from Michigan. We've talked, she's one of the freshman four, the squad. She made the comment about President Trump. He continues to say things about the American cities across this country. So she's accusing Trump of saying something bad about the cities. Look, our president has a hate agenda. He doesn't have a policy agenda. This accusation she is making, and she, she talked about hate. Many other people on the Democrat side in Congress made references to, well, Trump only said this because he's a racist. Obviously, you know, because Representative Elijah Cummings happens to be black, it must be that is the reason that President Trump is pointing out the situation in Baltimore. Folks, Trump is pointing out the situation in Baltimore to make the stellar point that Democrat policies hurt poor people. Democrat policies especially hurt poor people of color, to use the trendy term. The inner cities of America, which have many of have a majority or a significant minority uh, black population, have suffered under Democrat rule for decades. They are all crumbling. I'm going to give you some of the, that data in a moment. But is this accusation or this statement that President Trump made in his tweets is pointing out what really happens to cities around this country when they submit to the left-wing Democrat mindset. It's a great, great thing. It was another strategic move by President Trump. He's forcing the Democrats to have to either defend the policies and defend the conditions in these inner cities, which they can't do. There's nothing to defend about inner city Baltimore, Atlanta, you know, Los Angeles. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, there was actually a particular uh, uh, statement that President Trump made about Baltimore being rat infested, and that did not sit well, of course, with the left. But I'll tell you, it is so bad that NPR, who loves Democrats and loves liberalism, NPR actually did a special in 2018, a special talking about the rat problem in Baltimore. In fact, Baltimore. In fact, they called it the Rat Film documentary. It was about Baltimore's rodent problem. Just last year, PBS, who loves liberals and loves big government and loves Democrats, had to point that out. But even worse than that, all these Democrats trying to criticize President Trump and how could you say that? You must be saying it because you're a racist. These are people who have complained about the inner city and pointed out the horrific conditions themselves. A key figure being Democrat presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders actually made a visit to Baltimore during the 20, um, during 2015 when he was trying to win the Democrat nomination, which Hillary won, but he was trying to win it. He, Bernie Sanders, made a visit to Baltimore and during that visit referred to the city of Baltimore as a third world country. He went on and on and on about the poverty, the destruction, the rats, the, the filth, the dirt, the lack of education. He was brutal describing what Baltimore is really like. And I don't recall anyone in the Democrat media mob pointing out that Bernie Sanders was racist for pointing this out. 
Now, as you, you know, Elijah Cummings was still the Cong member of Congress representing that area. The city's government has been Democrat and mostly black for decades. So Sanders could have easily been the recipient of criticism that, oh, hey, this is a racist thing to say. You can't say that. But no one would say that because he's Bernie Sanders. But I really want to get down to wrap up today's first five to say is this. Oh, actually, you know what? I started to pull stories to run through and point out that everybody and their brother in America who's ever been to Baltimore understands the problem. I'll tell you, the Baltimore Sun ran an op-ed in 2016 saying, President Trump is right. Please declare Baltimore a disaster area and rebuild it. There was the homicide rate in Baltimore, second highest in the country. The uh, rat infest infestation data about Baltimore at six highest in the country. Orkin lists it. Orkin, the, the, the people who fight rat infestations, lists it as the sixth most rat infested city in the country. Nothing President Trump said was racist and nothing he said was untrue. It simply rattled the left because it's again turning the focus on what exactly is the outcome of Democrat policies? Baltimore is a prime example. And the last point in today's first five is this. President Trump ran on the idea of draining the swamp. You likely recall that draining the swamp was very popular, still is today when he goes to his rallies, and had a lot to do with removing people who've been in government too long, who just stay in Washington, whether elected officials or members of the bureaucracy, people in the Trump and the you know, Obama administration, it was people, number one. It was also policies and regulatory control, which the American left had grotesquely expanded under the Obama administration. The number of regulations had just skyrocketed and had stymied the growth of new businesses and small businesses. So drain the swamp, might get rid of people who've been there too long, get rid of policies and uh, and agencies and regulations that have been there too long but the piece that this is relevant to today's story drain the swamp also means the idea that we are going to be boldly able to talk about truth about america about inner cities about democrat policies and not be shut down if there ever was a person who is willing to speak the truth about the problems America faces, put them out in you know, all cap letters in his Twitter feed, and take incoming criticism, take the criticism, take the attacks, and then fight back. This, this ongoing back and forth between Elijah Cummings and President Trump, gone several iterations, President Trump isn't backing down because the, the truth is the facts are on his side. Baltimore is a mess, and it's not a mess because the people are bad. Trump is not attacking the people. Trump is supporting the people of Baltimore. He's saying, you individual Americans, you have a right to live better. You shouldn't have to live in rat-infested, low-income, you know, just buildings that are destroyed or decaying, neighborhoods are a mess. You deserve a better life. And there turned out there was somebody who lives in Baltimore who agreed with President Trump. And my extremely wonderful producer, Matt, has two clips of this woman. She's a Baltimore resident. She had a few things to say in response to this battle between President Trump and Elijah Cummings. Trump is not racist, not to my knowledge. I'm glad that he pointed it out. I'm glad that he put him on blast because People in West Baltimore have been putting Elijah coming on uh, him on blast for years. Ever since he's been in office, he never did anything for us. Like I said, if he's supposed to be from this neighborhood, like I said, supposed to be, it just, the rats just, just didn't come. These houses just didn't get torn down. They've been like this. If he would take the time out to come over here and see how things are, maybe he 
get to be better at his job. Thank you. Okay, that woman, I don't know her name. She just did an interview for someone, a man on the street interview. But she, if you couldn't catch, it was a little noisy because the wind was blowing. Well, here she is again. We want a little clip by her, and then I'll talk about her. Go ahead, please. I was Thank so you. excited when Ms. Kim told me how many hits that we got and that the president actually responded to a lot of And what he said was definitely true. He hasn't done anything for us. For the last, I think he's been in office over 20 years. 30. 30? Okay. So I was like 18 back then, and he hasn't done anything for us. No cookouts, no shoe giveaway, no clothes giveaway, nothing for the... And then y'all just want to know about the houses. He hasn't done anything. Today is Saturday, July the 27th, 2019. Not 1819. It's today. <laughs> she, she throws in, this is 2018, not 1819. Okay. Why I wanted to play her was the people in Baltimore. You can see the neighborhood she's living in. If you watch the whole video, they, had, they went building after building and empty lots full of trash and garbage and rats. And she's saying the guy's been there since 1996. Now, maybe you don't think that, that uh, Elijah Cummings ought to bring the kind of things that district she wants. She's saying, hey, he never is here. He never has cookouts for us. She's saying he never does anything for us. He never looks out for us. Who's he representing? And Trump is making the point pretty much. Elijah Cummings is more concerned about non-citizens coming across the southern border and giving them as fast as he can a way to stay here, a way to be granted at least temporary amnesty, to disappear into one of our sanctuary cities, that those are the people that Elijah Cummings speaks up for, that he gets hysterical in Congress about talking to the Border Patrol, not about his own district, where he, which he's represented. It hasn't been, I know that tape said 30, said 30 years. I think it's been like 23, but still, long time. Baltimore's gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. And as I say, we lived in Maryland, or yeah, in Maryland, at the time he first elected to Congress. Inner Harbor was a lovely place. Now, when you look at things like TripAdvisory and other sources that you look to to find out about travel information, you're warned about Baltimore, don't go out at night, don't go to the Inner Harbor at night. I mean, these, these are crazy things. And they, I'll bring it back to our, and really, this is a very long first five, but to bring it back to the closing point, this, these are solvable problems. These are problems that can be drained. This drain the swamp is actually change policies, speak up about things that are, that somehow the left has tried to make a sacred cow. You can't talk about this. You can never discuss this. You can't really go there. President Trump is breaking all the rules. We're going to talk about racial problems. We're going to talk about the problems in the inner cities. We're not going to back down the moment someone on the left calls call someone a racist, we're going to actually tackle these problems. The inner city poverty is not an unsolvable problem. It has seemed unsolvable because the American left has been in charge in those cities and nothing good ever comes out of their policies. And that, my friends, is today's first five. I want to turn now and talk about uh, Sidney Powell. I will tell you, she's been on the show a bunch of times. Sidney Powell um, is a former U.S. attorney. She's the author of the book, License to Lie. And she was on, I, in fact, on our YouTube page, America, if you're watching on YouTube, America Can We Talk, on the YouTube page is a very lengthy interview I did of her about six weeks ago, I think it was. I have it across the top because people are enjoying watching it so much. It's lengthy. It lays out the whole long history of getting where we got to the Russia-Trump collusion. Um, and it's a stellar interview, but I had a little chance to talk to her over the weekend. And I want to just bring a little bit of an update about things. Number one is this. Now, and I think most of you probably know, Sidney Powell represents Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who is a 
you know, he's a two-star general. He is a, a man who served this country for decades. While all of us are safely home in our houses and living our lives, he was serving America, living abroad, being far away from his family. And so he came back to try to help in the Trump administration and got caught up in the Trump, um, really, the Mueller collusion perjury trap thing that the Mueller team set up. So he did plead guilty to something and now uh, he's been, his representation has been taken over by uh, Sidney Powell and things have changed. One particular thing I'll tell you about that you can read about um, is there was a prosecution, a criminal prosecution pending in the Eastern District of Virginia in a federal court and the uh, person who was being prosecuted was Lieutenant General Michael Flynn's business partner, whose name is Bijan Rafikian, or um, to be, um, he's often goes by just the last four letters, Kian, but anyway, his full name is Bijan Rafikian. He was uh, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn's business partner. Most of this prosecution centered around the federal law called FARA, which basically requires if you are an American citizen and you represent a foreign government, to our government, you're lobbying on behalf of foreign governments, you have to register for, and I meant to look up the way here, Foreign Agent Registration Act, I think is what FARA stands for, F-A-R-A. So this is one of the things that Lieutenant General Michael Finn, Flynn pled to, that he had filed a, um, an incorrect, no, he hadn't pled to, let me get to the story that I was hearing from Sydney. The bottom line was the prosecutors in this case were trying to force Lieutenant General Michael Flynn to go on the stand and testify that at the time he filed the FARA application, he knew that some of the statements were not accurate, that he knew essentially there were false statements and he was signing it. And he, you know, said, no, there, you know, I'm not going to do that because I didn't know. The point of getting, this was a, a loud screaming match battle between the prosecutors and a bunch of other people with the point being prosecutors were trying to say, basically, we don't care whether you knew, you need to get on the stand and testify. And this is getting around to one of these points about draining the swamp. The attitude of the American left, especially in, during the eight years under Obama, especially Department of Justice, FBI, the idea that you simply have the right to twist and contort the law to bring it around to what you want it to be. And this is why, for example, we've talked about many times in the show about Andrew Weissman. He was even more apparently now after we all watched the Mueller testimony in Congress last week and realized Mueller doesn't know anything that happened. He was befuddled and confused the whole time he was on the stand. He, I mean, at the whole time he was testifying in Congress that he never heard of Fusion GPS, seemed to not know much of anything. Well, many people inside the Washington bubble have talked about, really, that Mueller wasn't in charge of the investigation pretty much the whole time. Andrew Weissman, his alleged second in charge, the two have worked together for years, Andrew Weissman was really the one running the whole thing. Mueller, to repeat something, someone who was involved said to me was sitting in the corner twiddling his thumbs he really didn't know what was happening so Weissman was in charge as Weissman is the guy who has been he is one of the central figures in the book that Sidney Powell wrote License to Lie where she describes Weissman's conduct in the Enron case in which he literally created criminal charges that don't exist he pulled a piece from this law and a piece from this law put it together and got convictions and only when it got all the way to the US Supreme Court did justice finally get served and the Supreme Court decide 9-0 telling Weissman, you can't make up stuff. You just can't cook up 
charges that don't exist. You can't make up new law in order to get the guy you want to get. He was described in great detail in her book as a just a truly uh, vengeful, um, uh, not just not just you know hard driving trying to get the conviction, but willing to contort the truth, mislead the court, do whatever he had to do to get the conviction. One of the other central things he did, and we're going to get back to Flynn, was as described in *License to Lie*, is that he withheld evidence that what is called withholding exculpatory evidence, evidence that you're required as a prosecutor to turn over to the defense attorneys if the evidence will in any way help the accused be able to uh, prove their innocence or that would help the case uh, that the accused is trying to present in any way. Weissman had that information, had information in the Enron prosecutions and held it back. So now back to where we are. I think these judge, these prosecutors in the, the Department of Justice, especially those going after Lieutenant General Michael Flynn and his business partner Bijan Rafikian, have never seen the likes of Sidney Powell. She is just not letting them run roughshod over her. She will not do it. She is standing up for her client. She's insisting you're not going to tell my client you have to plead uh, to something or because you're being threatened. If you won't plead to this, we can bring other charges. We might bring charges against your son. Again, recently, with, in, with respect to this case in Eastern District of Virginia, where this, um, his partner, Bijan Rafikian, was found guilty by a jury last Friday, the prosecutors had been flirting with the idea, floating the idea, maybe we'll charge Lieutenant General Michael Flynn's son again. I mean, threatening him to try to force him to do what they wanted him to do. He wouldn't give false testimony. They got the conviction anyway. According to many lawyers involved in the case, there is very high likelihood this conviction will be reversed on appeal. To tell you just one little tidbit of it, FARA, it is, it is a federal law. I mean, it does, if you are in Washington and you're representing a foreign government, you're supposed to file and say, yes, I am here on behalf of the government of Russia or Italy or whatever country it is. But usually what happens, and, and there's also usually often a question, if you're representing an entity within a country, a, a business, or even a, a group of people who aren't officially the government, but maybe that, that group of people connects with the government periodically or is guided by the government or that group is in fact acting in the interest of the government, these questions are not black and white. Do you have to file the FARA uh, form? Do you have to file and say that you are, um, that you are acting on behalf of foreign age, foreign government? Because sometimes you don't really think you are. You're thinking, well, my client is, you know, this, and you may not know behind the scenes that, that your client is really connected to the government. Well, that was ha what was happening in this case. There was not any knowledge on behalf of the uh, you know, according to Michael Flynn's position, not any knowledge on behalf of them that the entity that they were working with was really controlled by the Turkish government and therefore they should have had to file this form. So, end of the day, they got a conviction of Michael Flynn's partner, but many people think it will be reversed on appeal. But this is a, a, a crime, if you want to call it that, this FARA thing, the, the determination of the Mueller team to prosecute people in any way to get to President Trump, to taint President Trump, to maybe turn them so they will turn against President Trump, that determination is on steroids. And many people will report that FARA violations, often what happens, especially the kind of case where you didn't really know you were representing a foreign government, you thought you were representing somebody and, and turns out they're kind of connected, it's like a letter in the mail. Hey, you know what? It looks like is your your con your uh, clients kind of bridging or getting close. You should file a FARA. It's a small fine, if anything. 
making it a federal case. This guy is 67, I think, uh, Michael Flynn's partner, my, uh, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn's partner, and um, facing 15 years in prison. And, and, and a thing which, if it isn't reverse an appeal, and he may not get that kind of sentence, but the point is, this is the, this is, I want to close out this, two last points on this story. This is the ongoing coup attempt to take out President Trump. We talked about this in many different avenues, many different venues, the idea within the Justice Department, they were not going to let him win that, the presidency, all of what they did during the 2016 presidential campaign, all the efforts to undermine Trump, to connect him with Russians when there was no such connection, to bring about the, the whole uh, getting FISA court warrants and spying on Trump people and all with the effort to build up in the minds of the American people that President Trump was corrupt. And then we had to have the Mueller investigation. Everyone's thinking, well, as soon as Mueller's done, everyone's going to see Trump was a criminal. There was conspiracy. He didn't. And, and by the way, collusion isn't a crime. It's conspiracy is really the crime. Collusion became the word people use, but that's not really a crime. But the, the conclusion of Mueller was no conspiracy between Trump and the Russians. So that, you would think, would cause this to be, okay, put it to bed. Can we move forward? Can we do the business of the American people? But this is still that same mindset that you had inside the FBI early on 2016 and all the way up until now inside the Department of Justice, this determination to take down President Trump. This is the ongoing coup. This is the corruption inside the DOJ. This is why it is so vital to have Attorney General Barr continue his investigation, his determination to figure out who it is, how this whole thing got started. Barr seems very, very committed. This is a great thing. But the last uh, little pitch I want to make on the um, whole Sidney Powell and um, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn is that he, uh, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, already literally is broke. He was forced, in order to pay the cost of his attorneys, uh, forced to sell his home, and he is broke. So there is, uh, this is the first time I've ever done this on a show. I've done this show over five years. First time I'm going to say, if you're concerned about justice and you care about getting to the truth, you might want to consider supporting Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. There is a fund to help him. Mike Flynn, like M-I-K-E, then F-L-Y-N-N, defensefund.org. It's going to be on our Why It Matters at the end. It's going to be on my Facebook page, mikeflynndefensefund.org. Any contribution will help because literally the man's, you know, his life savings have been drained. He doesn't own his house anymore. I mean, they are literally struggling, extremely struggling in order to get by. And you, any help you could offer would be, uh, and I will keep you posted on this uh, prosecution because I think uh, Sidney Powell is just, I don't think they've seen anyone like her. She is determined, determined to bring justice for Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, which I believe ultimately should be that all charges are dropped. He can, either he can withdraw his... Um, guilty plea or charges are dropped or at the highest level in the, the highest court to say, you know, just throw everything out because the guy was truly railroaded by the Mueller team. And the next story I want to talk about today uh, in our, and wow, we always, somehow there's something wrong with the clocks in the studio because like we're almost on time warp here. I want to hit three more stories very quickly. One was a great congressman from the state of Texas, John Ratcliffe, um, which he's a first term, I think he's first term, member of Congress. And he, we played clips from him last week during the hearing where uh, Mueller was uh, testifying before Congress and he, Ratcliffe, did a great job zeroing in on one kind of big overarching point of the Mueller investigation, which was essentially, why is it that you 
did not do what every prosecutor knows his job is, which is either you look at the evidence, you indict, or you seek an indictment, or you decline a declination, you decline to indict. What Ratcliffe was pointing out to Mueller is you deliberately put President Trump in a no man's land because you wouldn't just say, I've looked at the evidence, I decline to prosecute. This adds to obstruction. So Ratcliffe was, I mean, his words may go down in history. They were so stellar and really good and pointing out, essentially his point is you ended up putting President Trump in the position of, of flipping the burden of proof or, or flipping the presumption of innocence, forcing President Trump to prove his innocence when your job was to say, either we indict or we don't. But instead you say, well, it could be, I don't know, maybe let me look this up. These things might be left him in limbo and Ratcliffe point out that just violates basic juris, uh, you know, jurisprudence standards of America since our founding. But Ratcliffe has now been nominated to become uh, the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence and he's replacing Dan Coats. And I want to just say quick things about Dan Coats. I mean, everything's relative. He was on the right side of the aisle. He's one of the last people remaining in high positions in which President Trump, being new in Washington, not having a deep cadre of, of allies and long-term colleagues, that President Trump had to choose people to put them in important positions uh, who turned out to be not really exactly with the Drain the Swamp program. He wasn't anti the drain the swamp, but Dan Coach is just not one of those kind of fighter guys, kind of similar to Jeff Sessions. You know, President Trump put him in place as attorney general, and, and it, he just didn't have the fight in him that he had to have, given what radical changes President Trump is bringing to America. When I say radical changes, he's getting America back on track, back on being making America America. So John Ratcliffe nominated to be a DNI, Director of National Intelligence. Um, and actually, it's good. I think it's going to be really interesting to watch uh, because it does require confirmation from the Senate. And, you know, we have endless battles for Senate confirmations, of course. Uh, but it'd be very interesting to see how hard the left pushes against him. Because one of the great things that Ratcliffe said was essentially that he trusts Attorney General Barr to get to the root, get to the beginning, the predicate of the whole question of how this whole Russia-Trump collusion hoax got started. This was the great thing that Ratcliffe said, and I think, I, I don't know, I don't know President Trump, but I'm going to guess it would have helped him tip, tip his hand toward, you know what, yeah, we've got to get this guy into the... Um, you know, into uh, a powerful position because Ratcliffe is cheering on the effort by Attorney General Barr to get to the bottom. And Ratcliffe's statement included the very vital words, including people even in the previous administration that may have to be prosecuted. He was willing, I don't have the exact words in front of it. Ratcliffe basically said to the world, you know what, when you get to the bottom of this, previous administration members may have to be prosecuted. And he's Right. So putting Ratcliffe in is not just putting someone in who's not a, you know, kind of a squirmy establishment old, old Republican. He's a strong Republican, uh, but he's also someone who's recognizing that the depth of the problem created by the Mueller, you know, collusion hoax, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, how serious it was, how dangerous it was for America, how extremely important it is for America to get to the very bottom of who in the Department of Justice started this, who authorized all this spying on Papadopoulos, and who authorized the whole setup with uh, Mifsud and all the people we've talked about so many times. Who started it? Who authorized it? Who knew it? Who covered it up? 
all those people have committed crimes. And from previous statements from Ratcliffe, he's sounding like, yeah, he's on, on board with the idea we're going to get to the bottom of this. And I'll tell you, there was one other, uh, I have sent one clip to the extremely wonderful Matt, uh, which was uh, Congressman Nunes, Devin Nunes, who also spoke about the idea of how important it is to get to the bottom of the, the Trump-Russia collusion, what happened. So here you go, Devin Nunes. All of us want to see justice equal under the law, right? So we want to see everyone held accountable. I believe that if the, the new attorney general in the Department of Justice, if they don't take all of this on and do a full scrub and have full accountability and transparency for the American people, you are going to see generations of conservatives who will not trust Department of Justice, they will not trust the FBI, and they for sure will not trust the FISA process. Okay, I just love that guy. That's Devin Nunes. And he is basically saying, it was a really uh, poignant quote, poignant point he was making, you will have generations of conservatives who cannot trust the Department of Justice and the FBI unless we, and the CIA and the NSA until we get to the bottom of what happened. And he is right, and I think that this uh, putting Ratcliffe in the position of Director of National Intelligence, it's a signal from Trump. We're not dropping this, folks. We're going to get to the bottom of it. So that is the great, a great congressman from Texas now taking an important position, we hope, as long as you get Senate confirmation um, in the Trump administration. The final story today, I want to just uh, briefly touch on the battle at the border. And I just have a quick image to show you. I sent Matt an image. Uh, this is, uh, you can see it's a football stadium. Okay, just take a look at the size crowd right there. That is a Michigan I, okay, I don't even know if it's University of Michigan, Michigan State. Some football person is going to quickly text and say, tell me which one it was. But in any case, it's a football stadium. There are approximately 106,000 people sitting in that stadium. See how crowded that is? Okay, so roughly the same number of people who crossed into America illegally in April, again in May, and again in June of this year. Every time you hear these border statistics, you think, well, you know, it's a lot of people. But it's not that many people. Picture that football stadium picture. That's how many people made their way across the southern border in April of this year, in May of this year, and in June of this year. People who the American left is arguing we can't really keep them contained. We can't really, you know, let's, not get, let's not bother them too much about why they came here. Let's not get too excited about asylum standards. That's what the problem is. And I want to tell you a little bit about how we going forward uh, on the border battle. You, of course, saw that President Trump got a good ruling um, from the Supreme Court last week in which they did say, which was, again, obvious from the language of the statute, but you had to fight all the lower federal courts who will not cooperate and won't follow the law. Finally get to the Supreme Court when he, they said, yes, of course, President Trump can use his military funds to build portions of the wall. I saw the media trying to downplay it, say, yeah, okay, so he can build 100 miles. First of all, it's not a continuous wall. Again, as you said many times, it's a wall where no other forms of security are adequate. So it's a wall where you need it, not everywhere. So 100 miles doesn't necessarily mean 100 miles continuous wall. But I saw Border Patrol said, no, no, that kind of money, we're, we're talking more like 250, 260 miles. So whatever it is, he got a ruling from the court saying, yeah, we're going to build more of the wall. But I want to tell you about a conference, and I think this is really important for um, people who, you know, I'm I very, very critical of the American left, of the Democrats unwilling to fund the um, border wall, unwilling to deal with the border crisis, 
putting out statements claiming there is no crisis. What are you even talking about? And uh, also unwilling to get after sanctuary cities. They support sanctuary cities. They support lawlessness in this country. They demean the idea and importance of citizenship every time they float amnesty for some portion of the many illegal aliens living in our country. And I, I am very critical of that mindset because you can't have a country without borders. You can't have a country without the concept of citizenship. It's like, it, it's like having a home and let anyone come in and they're not part of your family and they're not someone you invited in, but you say, hey, yeah, you can be here too. Pretty soon you lose the idea of it being your home. You lose the idea of a country if you don't embrace a specific concept, whatever it is you're going to have that allows people to become citizens. So there was a conference, so I'm going to be critical of other, others beside the American left, even though they hold most of the blame. But there was a conference, um, it's called, uh, put on by, uh, it was a wall, we the, the We Build the Wall Symposium, which I hadn't heard of, but they had people from Numbers USA and Center for Immigration Studies and various other um, activists, and they, were, they had a little panel on current crisis facts, figures, and analyses. What I want to say about this to start with is, I said at the start of the show about how drain the swamp means many things and they all matter. It matters to get rid of bad policies, people have been there too long, get rid of bad presumptions, get rid of old things like no one's allowed to talk about the problems in the inner city because you'll be called a racist if you talk about them. Those things we have to get rid of too. We also have to get rid of this concept that has really become embedded in American kind of political conversation that some problems are unsolvable. That is how the left keeps problems in perpetuity by presenting them as overwhelmingly difficult, they can't possibly be solved. Inner city poverty is one of them. Another one is border security. We had pretty much, without even realizing it as a nation, decided because President Obama wasn't excited about border security, he wasn't gonna do much about it, he certainly was gonna help everybody who came here illegally. He's the one that did the whole regulation to create DACA and essentially give a legal status to people with no legal right to be here, even though uh, he had said you know, two years earlier, you know, I don't really have the right to do that. His regulatory practices, Obama's regulatory practices and his legislative efforts all were designed, all designed to permit, in fact, encourage the uh, crossing the, the southern border of America. In fact, the, the entire DACA thing became known. The idea that, and the wrongly understood idea about it, became known in Honduras and Guatemala and, and in Mexico that, oh, if you get to America, and it, once you get in, they'll let you be a citizen. This is how DACA was understood in those uh, Central American countries. So the, the uh, caravans, the border crisis was largely created, enticed and embellished by the Obama administration. And so then we got to the point where we are now where President Trump is finally one of the drain the swamp things saying, wait a minute, we don't have to accept a, a, a random insecure border. We don't have to accept that we just can't control our borders. But that mindset has been planted in the American people that was just, it's just too hard, we can't really do it, look at all this territory. And all President Trump, this idea is saying is, we cannot accept this as an unsolvable problem. Of course it's solvable. Of course we can bring this situation under control. And this is why we have requests for funding of the border wall, why we have requests for expansion of border patrol, why we have requests for expansion of the number of facilities in order to hold people while we're reviewing their asylum practices. We have President Trump, their, their asylum applications. We have President Trump pushing for changes in immigration law. Taking charge of the border is not racist. 
It's not mean. It's not, you know, it doesn't have any bad motive to it. It's all about agreeing that you love and respect your country and you will treat America like a country. Now, I want to go to this conference just to point out that these organizations, these are nonpartisan organizations, they're making the point, and I feel like I don't make it often enough on this show, that there is tremendous pressure from some on the right also to not crack down on the border too significantly, to not crack down on employers who employ illegal aliens. And these are, these are uh, employers who have become, come to rely on low-wage labor of people coming, coming into our country who don't really have the right to be here, uh, but they can pay them low wages, and so they, employers, become members of chambers of commerce, chambers of commerce, and the National Chamber of Commerce, you know, mega donor to re- many Republicans in Congress who, those Republicans, will come home to their districts and say, oh yeah, border security, I'm right with President Trump, yeah, they love security. But when they get to Washington and they realize how much money they might lose from, their, from donations, the Chamber of Commerce, if they actually act in accordance with what they promise their constituents they believe in, they, sadly, some members of Congress come down the side of, I'm not going to lose those donations, therefore, I'm going to talk a good game, but I'm not really going to support border security. This is another, you know, beside President Trump having to deal with a relentlessly harsh press and, a, you know, and relentless, endless criticism of him and endless criticism from the American left and the determination of the American left to keep the border insecure, so that more and more people come into America who they think they'll eventually turn into citizens and permanent Democrat voters, he has his own party to deal with. And this is just, it was a fabulous conference pointing out that if we really care about it, it means even on, on the conservative side of the aisle, even the employer side of the aisle, we have to be willing to say the idea of border security and citizenship includes cracking down on employers. It includes recognizing members of Congress who won't move the ball forward because they're hanging on to Chamber of Commerce donations. That's another thing to call out to get this whole ugly border mess completed. So we'll talk about the border more next week, but I just wanted this border conference had, you know, 25 great suggestions. And by the way, if you want to see these um, notes or the article about this conference, you can go to my website, americacanwetalk.org on the homepage under shows, go down list of links, and you can see this article because it listed out all these organizations were there, what suggestions they had. They had lots of good suggestions. There are ideas. There are solutions. We just need the backbone to put them into law. And the final topic for today, I'm always saying how amazingly great our country is, and, and so I'm just going to tell the quickest story. Um, I, I, I should do these more often. I run across these stories all the time. But if you listen to the American left, if you listen to the Democrat presidential candidates, you would think we're living in the meanest, most selfish, most hate-filled, racist, bigoted, ugly country ever to exist on the planet Earth. And the truth is, everything they say about America is a lie. Everything they say about America is a lie. This is a country filled with noble, good, generous people who work very hard to do the right thing, to take care, to love their neighbors themselves, to never engage in discrimination, to treat people fairly. This is a country full of good, noble people of every race, religion, and national origin, skin color, background. One particular story, it's a faster story, and, just, and then we've got to go to our end of our show here, but there was a mother in Arkansas a small town in Arkansas, which I never heard of. She was doing back to school. She's on the school board. She was doing back to school shopping with her kids. They went to Payless, which is a discount shoe store, Payless Shoes. 
got her kissing little school uh, school shoes, and her daughter said, that, and the, school, the store, by the way, was going out of business. Payless was closing down there. They're at the checkout, and her daughter said, can we buy you know, some kind of shoes for some friend of hers? She knew her friend wanted these shoes, and they couldn't afford them. Mom goes, sure, we can get her those shoes. And the mother just jokingly said at the register, well, how much would it cost if I buy all the shoes in the store, since you're going out of business anyway? And the guy laughed. They chuckled, yeah, yeah, yeah. The manager called her at home later and said, you know, we have a lot of shoes here and we're getting more shipped in. So he gave her an offer. She hasn't told that what that number is, but she did it. She bought all, okay, all the shoes. I'll tell you the name of the, Carrie Jernigan, Jernigan, something, uh, Jernigan. This, in this small town, bought every single pair of shoes, 1,500 pair of shoes. And then she found out there were more being shipped in, bought those two. And she's having a shoe fest. I think that's what it's called, a shoe fest. But some back-to-school fair where she's saying, you know how they always do, like we do here in Dallas. Everybody does. They have places where they say, you know, you can come and you can donate notebooks and pens and markers and whatever uh, kids need for low-income kids. She just donated with something over 1,500 pairs of shoes. Beautiful story. And this is not, this is wonderful. And to be praised, it is not unusual because America really is a country filled, extraordinarily filled with good generous people and as I always do oh before no I gotta do as go I gotta go to our final um, uh, we always do at the end of the show I want to tell you why the stories I talk about every week why they matter to you so we'll start with Baltimore besieged truth does not have a race Trump is speaking the truth about Baltimore and frankly everybody knows it the New York Times ran this story in 2016 um, about Baltimore as a wasteland. Bernie Sanders likened Baltimore to a third world country. Baltimore's former mayor, Pugh, um, actually commented on the smell of rats in the city. I've played that tape on our show before. Uh, Democrats claiming President Trump speaking these same truths is racist. They're just trying to divert America's attention from the overwhelming reality that their policies never help poor people. Americans of every background deserve better government. Sidney Powell and Justice for Michael Flynn, why it matters to you. We must stay awake. The deep state media coup attempt remains ongoing. Accountability and repair of unprecedented corruption of American institutions requires moral courage, fortitude, fearlessness, and persistence. Lieutenant General Michael Flynn increasingly looks to have been the target of a deliberate frame job by political hacks at the Department of Justice and the FBI. Sidney Powell is bringing him a fighting chance at justice. If you can possibly support them, go to MikeFlynnDefenseFund.org. It'd be great to do. Representative Ratcliffe to the rescue for, uh, to become our Director of National Intelligence. His words during the Mueller testimony about the bedrock American principle of presumption of innocence. I'm telling you folks, it was a brilliant legal point he made and it may become an American classic. Remember, Ratcliffe is one of a handful of people who has seen virtually all of the unredacted documents that are awaiting public declassification. I'm telling you, his nomination is making the Democrats nervous. Ratcliffe's nomination must be sending panic to the left because he's demanded accountability for the crimes committed. Senate confirmation process will be a window on swamp resistance and the border battle, why it matters to you. Supreme Court decision funded the wall. America can control our borders. It's just a matter of political will. The battle over the citizenship question on the census revealed the undeniable truth that Democrats do not respect the idea of citizenship and they do not want a secure border. Take that to the bank. Dems and its pro-mass migration GOP advocates are both problems. Trump is right, leading as he's leading. And last, our poverty shoe fest lady, 
Never forget, America is a good country filled with good people. The American people is about individual initiative, golden rule, loving your neighbor. You don't have to wait around for government to solve every problem. An Arkansas woman leads by example. We could have shoe fests around the country. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Please tune in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, because America matters. Talk to you tomorrow. Can we talk truth about America? Can you?